Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. And as always, dad is an energy, not a gender. A lot of smackaroonies once again. Kind of backloaded the week. We watched one on Sunday and didn't watch another one until... Friday. Friday. So... And then watched five in a row. Just blasted through them. Uh, so let's get into it. I'll kick things off with the first movie we watched on the Sunday and it was kind of a cool experience. So previously we went to our favorite place in the world, Metro cinema, and they did, uh, the first installment of their Kino confidential series, which is, uh, you don't know what movie you're going to see. So it's essentially Metro's version of a mystery movie pick. And if you've listened to the show, you know, that's our jam. We love that. And we, uh, when we went last time, they showed the film Near Dark and 35mm. Super cool experience. This time, they were having another one. Um, and they, they threw out some pretty good clues this time around. They had some photos. They had some plot uh, likenesses that you could, you, could, you could try to decipher what film we were going to be seeing. And then they also had this component where you could guess and win prizes at the cinema itself. We guessed. We were wrong. They ended up surprising us with a film I had never heard of. And it was pretty fun. It was 1998's Velvet Goldmine. It was a drama slash music movie. And it was directed by Todd Haynes, which is a reason that I'm surprised I never heard of this because I know Todd Haynes and have seen some of his stuff. It was written by him as well as James Lyons. Um, and it stars some pretty big cheeses in Hollywood. As the opening credits were going by, I'm like, how have I not heard of this with the with these people that are in it? There's Ewan McGregor as Kurt Wilde, Jonathan Reese Myers, who I haven't heard of heard from in a minute, it feels like, as Brian Slade, uh, Christian Bale as Arthur Stewart, Tony Collette as Mandy Slade, and Susie Izzard as Jerry Devine. Synopsis. In 1984, British journalist Arthur Stewart investigates the career 
from 1970s glam superstar Brian Slade, who was heavily influenced in his early years by hard-living and rebellious American singer Kurt Wilde. So, what'd you think of Velvet Goldmine? The whole mystery movie component is so interesting when done through movie theater instead of at home because you and I don't sit down and plan out our mystery movies like a month in advance. Yeah. And we'd kind of been getting clues for this, I think about three to four weeks ahead of time, one clue at a time. I don't like mystery movies as much when I could guess what they are. Right. You know, so I'm just like, what is it? What is it? What is it? Um, But then when the actual day comes, it's pretty fun. Yeah. So it was kind of wild because we didn't know what it was. I showed a couple people who I thought might know and they didn't know what it was. And then we went with three people who also didn't know what it was, what it was. And <laughs> even when um, this was one of those ones, and I wonder how much Metro thinks about this because you and I have picked mystery movies for each other where it doesn't actually say the name of the movie till the end credits. Mm-hmm. And we were getting pretty far into the movie and didn't have a title card yet. And I'm like, is this going to be one of those movies? Mm-hmm. But it does have a title card at the beginning. It's just about, I don't know, five-ish minutes into the movie. Yeah. And when the title card came up, none of us really knew what it was. We're all like, all right. Okay. (laughs) And I I know that I had seen the poster before, but I didn't know much about it. Now, that's kind of the most fun way to watch a movie, though, because you don't have any preconceptions and you just watch it and it just exists. Um I hadn't even fathomed the fact that it was Pride Month and was probably going to be something gay. Mm-hmm. Although our guess was Hedwig and the Angry Inch, but mm-hmm. that wasn't necessarily because it was June. Pride Month always gets mucked up for me with also like the end of the school year. And I'm just so busy with that that I kind of forget. Right. Yeah, I I liked this movie a lot. I said it then and I say it now that I think if I had seen this as a teenager, I would have been absolutely obsessed with it. Mm-hmm. Um it would have felt very clandestine. Like I, I shouldn't let my mom know that I'm watching this because <laughs> right. it's really sexy. Mm-hmm. And like a lot of like gender fuckery and boys kissing boys. And like the central tenet of the movie is like everyone's bisexual and monogamy's a prison. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And music is cool. <laughs> yes. Um, it was funny because there was, I feel like there was one soul in the movie theater that was excited when the title card came up or not even like just before that. Cause they've seen the movie and obviously love the movie. There's just like a, a lone woo <laughs> from the middle of the movie theater. Um, but yeah, it was, I can, I totally agree with you. Like, I feel like this would be, this would be kind of akin to like an almost famous in vibe a little bit. I mean, but make it gay, but make it gay and a lot more horny. Yes. Um, and a lot more boys kissing each other, but it was, it was fun to watch. Um, like yeah, throughout the whole thing, I'm just quietly chanting, just like kiss, 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 because of all the beautiful people on screen. Um, I love when Tony Collette shows up and stuff. Mm-hmm. So seeing her here was lovely, and like everybody's so baby faced in this too. Well, that's the interesting thing, right? Like, I think these actors could make this movie now for sure with the clout that they have. But I think if they had tried to make this movie five years after it was made, it would have disrupted their careers, right? Mm-hmm. Because the fact that these are big names, um, at least Ian McGregor, Christian Bale, Tony Collette, all well, Tony Collette in the indie scene at least, um, 
after the movie, we were standing around with some folks, some friends. Um, and one of the people was talking about how they did like this as a teenager and then said, you know, it was just mind blowing to know that like Batman and Obi-Wan Kenobi were allowed to kiss. <laughs> yeah. But they weren't Batman and Obi-Wan Kenobi yet. Mm -hmm. They were just about to be. Um, and that is kind of wild to think that you could be a little kid who liked Star Wars and Batman and then also watched this movie and was like, whoa. Yeah. Have you ever wanted to see Obi-Wan Kenobi and Batman kiss? This More than kiss, you. man. More than kiss. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. This feels like something, um, like it's not tame in its, it's no stupid bros. Yeah, right. You know? like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's not... This doesn't feel like it's for any, it's not trying to convince anybody to like what's happening in the film. If you're not already yeah. into the scene, then fuck right off. Right. Yeah. Well, it's just, it was, it's really refreshing having grown up watching movies like Almost Famous or like uh, Rockstar or things like that, that are kind of exploring this, it, you know, what it was like in the life of a seventies or eighties rock star and living that sort of lifestyle and the trials and tribulations of that lifestyle. It was just refreshing to have something that, you know, it kind of dabbles in camp a little bit, but it also has some really fucking great music and a bunch of babes and it's fucking with gender and, and sexuality in such a fun and accessible way. Um, yeah, I, I feel like now was the time in my life that I'm grateful to have seen it because having seen this other stuff I'm comparing it to, this elevates it so much more mm. in my eyes, which is really great. The music is really good. Yeah, it's excellent. Brian Eno? And some Tom York. Yeah. Tom York. Uh, so a lot of the people in the film did sing their own vocals, and Jonathan Riesmeyer does sing his own vocals a lot, but there's some songs where Tom York dubs the vocals for him. Not all of them, but some of them. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I liked the music. Yeah, it was it was really great. I, I love when the um, movies like this care enough to make the music good and give make it just it just furthers the case that this person is famous if the music is good. I also feel like you're not super into musicals that are like da 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 da. Like <laughs> you're more, you're more into musicals where the music is embedded into the film. Mm -hmm. So like, a, um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of something. Oh, like a Josie and the Pussycats or like, that's like a music film as opposed to a musical. Yeah. And like, I don't get me wrong. I do love a musical. Little Shop of Horrors rips and we'll cover it on the show one day, but. And Rocky Horror. Yeah. yeah but yeah. I don't feel like you're, let's sign up for a musical kind of person necessarily. So this is more your kind of music movie. Mm -hmm. And they do it really well. I think it's really interesting how it like cuts to these music videos at times. Mm -hmm. um, this is one that I do feel I would get even more out of on a rewatch because there is a lot going on. Mm -hmm. One of the clues that Metro gave is that its structure is inspired by Citizen Kane and we haven't seen Citizen Kane. So, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Um, shame on us. I guess won't be the last time Citizen Kane is mentioned in this episode. Mm. Spoiler alert. <laughs> um, but it does, it's going back and forth between like Christian Bale his character Arthur, like when he's younger and like is really enamored with this scene, but doesn't know who he is. And then when he's older and I believe living in America um, and like 
wants to cover these people that meant a lot to him and his identity and his sexuality when he was um, like a young adult. Mm-hmm. And so there is some kind of confusing back and forth and timeline stuff that I think would be really enhanced on a rewatch. And I definitely think I would watch this again. Um, people have had a lot to say about who the characters represent in the real world. So like Brian Slade being a David Bowie, um, people have been very upset at Kurt Wilde seemingly being Kurt Cobain, but he actually is supposed to be more of an Iggy pop Mm. and apparently Lou Reed as well. Um, But also like, it doesn't make sense that it would be a Kurt Cobain timeline wise. No, it doesn't. And it was interesting. I think I was chatting about this um, with our friend Tabitha, who we actually ran into at the theater. We'll tell that story in a second. Um, And she said, She's a Nirvana fan, as am I, but it seems like she knows more than me because she said that Kurt Cobain was very inspired by Iggy Pop. So it just becomes this kind of amalgam of, well, yes, this person might seem like this other person, but that's because they were inspired by the original person. Kind of a Twin Peaks effect type thing. Right. Um, But timeline wise, you're absolutely right that it doesn't it doesn't check out. And I think it just is that Ewan McGregor's facial features look perhaps more like a Kurt Cobain than like a Iggy pop. Right. But that's not the movie's fault per se. Can I just uh, have a quick sidebar and uh, tell you my really embarrassing, like first ex- first introduction to Iggy pop and all I knew him for, for a long time before digging deeper into who Iggy pop was. Yes. He was like a featured on a some 41 track. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's definitely more important than that. <laughs> and the song's really good. Actually, I think it's an Iggy Pop song that features some 41, but I came for some 41 gotcha. and just happened to meet gotcha, Iggy gotcha, Pop gotcha. and introduced Iggy Pop. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure I have some of those in my life as well. But isn't that the intention of those things? It's like some 41 who's very popular in the zeitgeist at the time that that song came out that it's like, hey, this is an opportunity. Or I guess if it is an Iggy Pop song, it's like, I'm going to use some 41 as the conduit to get into the zeitgeist of the who, kids listening to this uh, who, music. Who's between us and the boomers? Us and the boomers, Gen X? Sure. So like, it'd be like Gen X is like, we got to get the millennials. Yeah. Right? They're trying to figure it out. It'd be like if nowadays, like... Blink-182 did a song with Billie Eilish. <laughs> I, I kind of want to see that. Honestly, they probably would. Um, I have to say that whoever runs Metro Cinema's social media is killing it because they wrote the funniest comment on my Letterboxd review. <laughs> um, one of the elements of this movie is that there's a magical emerald brooch <laughs> that if you have it, you'll become a pop star. And um, <laughs> so, as it goes, as it goes, always. So I said in my review, I won't read the whole thing, but the start of my review was: Is it too late for me to be the next bisexual pop icon? Metro Cinema commented and said, "It's never too late for someone to pass along the emerald brooch to you!" <laughs> Exclamation mark. <laughs> and uh, that tickled me. So whoever is running that uh, made my day. Made me give uh, like big smiles. Top marks to the other, Metro Social. The team. other cute element of going to this is we had plans to see it with one of our friends, but we we pull up to the theater. The theater doesn't have a lot of parking. It has no. like three parking stalls, and then there's street parking and 
we're usually pretty good at finding parking, but it's always really disappointing when we don't because then we're like, ah, we didn't leave enough time to find parking and walk. We, we also have some parking hacks, but for the lay person that's going to uh, Metro, it can be a bit of a, a trial and tribulation. Especially if it's a busy movie or if you get there too close to the, the start time. We usually get there like half an hour early, so it's often why we Personal. don't have issues with parking. Yes. But we're, we're pulling up to the to the theater and there's this one spot um, right on the side of the street, which is street parking. But when it's open, it's pretty sweet to get. So we're going to we're going to park in there and then we see two people like sitting in an open metro parking stall behind the theater. And I'm like, what fucks Who are these jokers are like in the way of parking. And then we get closer and I'm like, oh, those are, are those are friends, <laughs> but not friends that we had planned to see the movie with. Um, so we go and say hi, and I guess they decided to go see the movie, and then our friend Tabitha was going to text me and say that they were coming, and then was like, ah, it's Pride Month. It's a mystery movie. They'll be here. We'll just see them there. <laughs> and sure enough, that is what happened, and so we all sat together, and that was very, very cute and very sweet, and yeah. So like in a way, they were chilling there because they knew. They're waiting for us. Yeah, they're coming. <laughs> a couple uh, funny pieces of trivia. Mm-hmm. So Tony Collette, we like. Yeah, like Tony Collette. Absolutely. I guess this role was um, lots of people wanted it, and Tony Collette was like, "I'm going to get it." So she just <laughs> faxed a note to Todd Haynes, faxed, awesome. and all the note said was in all capitals, "I am Mandy Slade." Todd Haynes was like, "All right." Todd Haynes said this was exactly what someone like Mandy would do, and gave her the role. And awesome. The other funny bit of trivia is, you know. You, it's impossible not to see that this is in some ways inspired by David Bowie, yeah. but it is in no way authorized as a David Bowie film. <laughs> yeah. So this is what David Bowie had to say about the movie when mm. asked. This is a quote. When I saw the film, I thought the best thing about it was the gay scenes. They were the only successful part of the film, frankly. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, cool. You know, there but... are a lot of gay scenes, so that's a big part of the movie. Yeah. And they are pretty successful. If you like to watch Boys Kissing Boys, this movie is for you. You heard it here first, folks. David Bowie approves the gay. <laughs> and nothing else. <laughs> I thought this was pretty fun. I like when a mystery movie, whether that's from a friend, whether it's from you, or now whether it's from our favorite theater, put something on my radar that I probably wouldn't have seen or wouldn't have watched. Mm-hmm. This just wasn't something I really knew much about and I'm really glad to have seen it and I'm glad to have seen it with other people and that is it. Yeah, 100%. Did he, do you know off the top of your head, did he do May, December? I, I don't know. Okay. I don't even know what that is. It's like, it's a movie that's coming out uh, and I don't know. I just really like, while I didn't love Carol. Yes, what, it is him. Yeah. Okay, cool. I didn't love Carol, uh, which Todd Haynes also did. But I just really like his filmmaking style and the choices that he makes. I like Carol, but um, I wouldn't say I love Carol. Exactly. I'm in the same boat. Um, I always get him confused with... Uh, oh, Todd Field. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, this guy that made Tar, and everyone's like, nope. <laughs> uh, nah. um, great camera work in this. A lot of like whip pans and quick zooms. Oh, yeah. I forgot that the zooms... Um, we were watching it with our friend Elliot. We've ta- I think we've talked about it a few times. And they loved the zooms. So good. And every time a zoom happened, just like a little nudge and a, and a, and a smile and a laugh. And that was so fun. It was a very fun part of watching the movie. It's really good. Um, <laughs> last thing I'll share about this is that movies like this and Almost Famous and Rockstar that portray 
the rock star lifestyle the way that it's portrayed here, the introvert in me would hate this lifestyle. For the longest time in my life, I'm like, I was in bands throughout high school and then into early adulthood and then a little bit more recently. I mean, you even quit college to try and like be a rock star. To make it happen. Setting very unrealistic goals of like, okay, by, let's set a goal. By the end of this year, we'll be playing in the local stadium. Uh, was that really a goal? Yeah. So oh. so unachievable. It's like, hey, let's maybe get a gig at the Starlight Room. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to be playing at Rexall. Yeah. And like I was chasing this musician lifestyle, albeit it would be nothing like this because I my personality is nothing like the people that are in this film or films like this. I just like being at home. I yeah. I, I don't want to be on the road and my life is just living at nighttime, staying up all night, well, traveling was, all day. I was even thinking about this because I read um, Laura Jane Grace's memoir, which to be honest, I didn't love even though I really do like her and her music mm-hmm. um it was like co-written with like a ghostwriter type thing and not a ghostwriter because the person's name is on it but it, it didn't have a lot of voice I, I won't say not like Elliot Page's right. memoir which is has a lot of voice um but the descriptions of being on the road like with against me just sound awful it just mm-hmm. sounds like a really toxic environment where like it's just partying and drugs and and like and, and sex yes but not in like a fun way um and then we, we we went to a concert for the first time since last summer we went and saw blink 182 Woo-hoo. Woo. um and i was thinking about that i was thinking about like what is life on the road like for these three men and i, I was more thinking about like what's because i mean they're old and they've probably like they're flying to and from but for like Turnstile, who's opening for them, I'm mm-hmm. like, that's probably a lot of what was in the Laura Jane Grace memoir, right? Mm-hmm. I'm just like, it just doesn't seem good. And I am glad that's not your life. Yeah. Well, it's funny because like on this tour, now we're kind of getting on a tangent, but on this tour, they've been posting a lot of behind the scenes stuff. And it's just like, it's a lot of just them sitting alone in their dressing rooms, watching baseball games and just chilling but in the past i've seen behind the scenes stuff and like yeah they're drinking they're partying they're doing drugs i think it takes a level of like confidence and success so that you have the power to say no i'm not going to party because in that memoir there was a lot of talk of like there'd be an intention to be sober an intention to like not cheat on your partner or whatever it is and then like that just that peer pressure and that like collective experience gets to you mm-hmm. and i think yeah if you're blink 182 and you're you've got all this money and all the success you can be like yeah we're just gonna hang out in our dressing rooms but mm-hmm. and it, then maybe because they set that precedent therefore their opening acts also can do that because uh, laura jane grace did talk about like being on tour with the foo fighters and that being really lovely like it being a totally different environment because like dave Grohl and the band kind of set that precedent that this isn't a party tour mm-hmm. but i just i mean velvet goldmine partying all the time. Yeah. All the orgies and drugs and <laughs> Yeah. 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 It's just not uh it's not it's not how I would tour and nor do I want to tour. Also, I'll just say that the Blink show was pretty awesome. <laughs> uh it's I've, this was our fourth time seeing them and it was the best time. They they were just so locked in. Very excellent. Uh, they're the whole reason I started, I picked up an instrument in the first place. So love them or hate them, they inspired me and thousands of other people to do the same, which is a big deal. 
And I bet you that this movie inspired a lot of people to kiss, kiss people boys. of the same gender. Um, yeah. And that is cool. Inspiration all around. How to make you feel. It made me feel so glad to watch a gay movie at my favorite theater with great people in a gay month. Yeah. You? Uh, yeah, just grateful for all the horned up beautiful people and grateful I wasn't a musician in the 70s slash 80s. A famous musician. Okay. Um, oh, baby. This is a movie that... We've both been, but particularly you, <laughs> anticipating for a long time, and, and now you've seen it, and now it's over, and let's talk about it. <laughs> so we went and saw the 2023 drama slash romance, Past Lives, another A24 baby, uh, directed and written by Celine Song in her debut feature film. She is a playwright, as we can tell in this film that seems very semi-autobiographical, um, and it stars Greta Lee as Nora. Tao Yu as Sung and John Magaro as Arthur. The synopsis, Nora and Sung, two deeply connected childhood friends, are rusted apart after Nora's family emigrates from South Korea. 20 years later, they are reunited for one fateful week as they confront notions of love and destiny. What did you think of this movie you were so excited to see? Before I get into it, I want to say we're halfway through the year. I wanted to share what my top five of the year so far. Top five, top five 2023 movies. From five to one. At five, Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> All right. At four, John Wick 4. At three, Bo is Afraid. At two is Spider-Man. And this is my number one so far. This, like you said, this, is, this was my most anticipated movie of the year. It slightly edged out Barbie. Waited so long. Got duped by so many release dates. That, that seems to be the thing with lesser or like kind of like B tier um, A24 movies. Yeah, where they like they first release in like New York and L.A. and then Toronto and Vancouver. And it just takes forever. And there seems to be a million different release dates. But it finally came to Edmonton. Yeah. And the wait was worth it. This is so beautiful and so powerful. Uh, our, our new buddy, Elliot. Uh, put this in their letterboxed review and I felt like it was so accurate that this is basically a feature length version of the laundry and taxes scene from everything everywhere all at once in mm. terms of feeling. Uh, I, I just, that really resonated with me to get, I mean, first of all, the craft, it's so gorgeously shot and like the cities that this takes place in, it, you just feel the cities, especially New York plays a big role in this. This feels like New York. Well, so Celine Song wrote a like a letter for A24 that like went out. Um, and she specifically talks about that, that this was an exploration of place and like the places that have held her and that have meant something to her. And it had such a ground. The film itself is just such a grounded film. Like it mm -hmm. feels very real and it grounds itself in place so specifically. Um Having been to New York, it's one of the cities I've been to the most. I haven't traveled a lot, but I've traveled to some places many times. There's nothing worse to me in media than New York that's not actually New York. Because it seems like you can just recreate New York, but you can't. It has such a specific feeling. And it was so lovely to see a New York that felt like the city. Yeah, like that's the biggest thing. Like This felt like New York 
in a way that Friends does not feel like New York. And even more specifically, like they're living in the East Village and that felt like the East Village. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we've been to New York and we've traveled to like specific parts of it and the East Village has a particular feeling. You can tell that's where they filmed. Mm-hmm. It feels different than Brooklyn. It feels different than Manhattan proper, right? Like mm-hmm. near Times Square. It feels different than Coney Island. Yeah. Um, one of the other pieces of media that I think does the best job of grounding itself in the specificity of New York is Mr. Robot. Mm-hmm. And I really loved seeing that sensibility here. Mm -hmm. Um, And it gave me a good sense of these places in South Korea as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Really, really lovely. I feel like a good gauge for us of the kind of A24 movies that will be for us is if the filmmaker writes a note for A24 that gets sent to my email. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, like this is... It, like you said, like Celine Song speaks to like this film being such an exploration of place, but it's it's place both physically but also emotionally because mm-hmm. it's this story is kind of told over a span of time, um, over twenty four years, I believe, um, and we kind of check in at three different points in those twenty. So the first, the kind of like year one, and then twelve years later, and another twelve years later. I was thinking about this as. You know, there's a lot of conversation right now about our multiverse is overdone and feeling burnt out from the multiverse. And this felt to me like the opposite of a multiverse movie. So instead of the branching paths your life could have gone down and the multiple versions of you, like there's a sense that it could go there. But what it is, because it's so grounded and it's so real, it's the realization that regardless of the branching ways your life could have gone, this is where you are. Yeah. And that specificity of like this is the place you've landed regardless of what else could have happened and an allowance for like reflecting longing mourning those other possibilities but not actually seeing them and <laughs> not yeah. the way that like oh and here's this version of you and this version of you and this version of you it's no this this is the only version of you it's just that there could have been different ways and and how how you live with that. I don't have a like long lost connective lover thing going on, (laughs) but I think we all have what ifs. Yeah. And you know, what if I had gone to Toronto and done journalism? What if you hadn't gone back to school and been like, no, I'm going to be a rock star. I'm going to make it work no matter what. Mm -hmm. Right. All of these different ways that our lives could have gone down different paths. And yet this is where we are. And you're allowed to feel all the ways you feel about the specific place you're in and the places you didn't go. Yeah. And this, this film does such a great job of just delving into the lingering introspective reflectiveness of those what ifs. Cause I feel like that is um, maybe this isn't the right word for it, but that is such a human flaw of we will always go with what ifs because as long as we're, we make decisions about our life and the things that we do and the choices we make, there will always be what ifs and it's how, how much do you allow yourself to get lost in that? And how much do you choose to linger in that? Cause I feel like you could just drive yourself mad thinking about the what ifs of, of everything. But this film focuses really, really, it really hyper focuses on a specific what if of what if I was with this person. Mm-hmm. 
um, or I made the decision to be with this person. Well, I mean, yes and no. I think it's also about place. Like, what if my family had stayed in South Korea? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of ways that a person can relate to this regardless of if they connect to the notion of moving from place. And I think there's a lot in here about um, like diaspora and the, and her identity as a South Korean immigrant. There's some really, really, really beautiful lines because she's with a white man about like that disconnect from her and her Korean culture um, and language and so that's a specific part of the film that maybe we can't relate to mm-hmm. or that not maybe we just, we can't relate to. Then there's that like romance part of it that like what this person you were connected to so long ago, but then there's just that general, like what are the different paths my life could have taken and the different connections I've had that I think is universal. And so I love, I think we talked about this last week, but I love a film that is specific mm-hmm. and yet also through that specificity allows for a broadening of connection. Mm -hmm. Um, emotional and intellectual and artistic for the, for the viewer. Mm -hmm. This is a film that I think if you left halfway through, it isn't as good. That's a weird way to say that, but I think that the film doesn't reach its brilliance until the end. Yes. I feel like it, for a lot of the film, it kind of feels like any other film. Mm -hmm. That's not the right way to say it, but at a certain point I was like, why is this so good that everyone says? And then the ending happens and I'm like, Oh, Mm-hmm. this is this is so good um like it felt like a good film the whole time but i was like what makes this film brilliant mm-hmm. what makes it get the praise that it's getting and then the last 20 minutes of the movie is just flooring yeah the work that's done here by greta lee tao Yu, and john magaro 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 i don't, I don't know. know but the three of them are so magnetic and especially between Nora and Sung, the the connection that they're able to portray on screen through no dialogue a lot of the time you you feel the weight of it so heavily and it's and it's so it's so impactful it's such a deep especially t- um especially uh Sung. like i just feel such a deep emotional presence whenever he's on screen um, he just like yeah, he just brings so much quiet emotional depth. Um, and also, uh, the character of Arthur by John Majero, like you just you can feel how complicated he's feeling about everything. I'm sure there's a lot of people who relate to his character. I can I can totally see myself in a in a different scenario in a different what if feeling that way. Cause you want to be there for your partner. You want to support them. You, you want them to have this experience with this person that was really important and is really important in their life. But there are some really heavy, very real emotions wrapped up in that for yourself and for them. And there's a scene between uh, him and Nora in bed and, I, I cried multiple times in this movie, but that scene got to me. Like some of the things that he says in being vulnerable and wanting to express his feelings while still f- like you still feel the restraint of him not wanting to fully com- and completely say what his honest truth is and what his honest feelings are about the whole thing. Um, and you understand why, but that doesn't make it any less 
doesn't make it any less hard or difficult. Yeah, this is a film that isn't afraid to get into the like messy complexities of what it means to be a human mm-hmm. and a human in relationship with other humans. And I think that this is a film not unlike After Sun that I'll get even more from on a second viewing um, where when you know where the journey is going to go. Um, and like After Sun is just an absolutely stunningly beautiful debut film um, from Celine Song in this case and Charlotte Wells in the case of After Sun. So I'm really glad that it's finally come to Edmonton. I'm crossing my fingers that it makes its way to Metro um, so that we can take some friends um, because I I don't like to give Cineplex too much money if I can help it. Mm -hmm. Um, I do want to highlight, because we can get pretty pissy about audiences, that we saw two films in in a Cineplex theater um, into uh, like back to back days, and both of the audiences were great, mm-hmm. like really, really good. And then you said when you saw the Flash with your mom, the audience's audience was good as well. So some hope, Refreshing. some hope for humanity. Um, yeah, yeah. How did past lives make you feel? Um, just a lingering emotional introspective reflectiveness that I was in love with. How about you? It made me feel gratitude. That seems to be the name of the game this episode. Gratitude for this beautifully grounded film. Yeah. Also seek out the music. It was it was done by a couple of the people from the band Grizzly Bear, who I'm not like a huge fan of. Um, not because I don't like them. I just never deep dove into them. But I listened to it while I was writing my notes for Past Lives and it just put, put me in the mood. It's excellent. Speaking of great music. Oh boy. Take us to our next film. God damn. Another slapper. Uh, we revisited one of our favorites, the 2009 animation drama family film Coraline. It was uh, directed by Henry Selleck, as well as written by Henry Selleck and the book, based off the book by Neil Gaiman. It stars Dakota Fanning as Coraline, Terry Hatcher as Mel Jones slash the other mother, uh, John Hodgman as Charlie Jones, uh, and Keith David as the cat. Also say Robert Bailey Jr. as Wyborn YB Lovat and Ian McShane as Bobinski. <laughs> Bobinski. Um, the synopsis: An adventurous eleven-year-old girl finds another world that is strangely ideal. That is a strangely idealized version of her frustrating home, but it has sinister secrets. What do you think of Coraline? I love Coraline. Mm-hmm. There's some movies that it just becomes a great sadness to me that they either I didn't see them at a certain age or that they didn't exist. And this came out when we were 19. Mm-hmm. But if this had existed when I was a child, I would have been obsessed. <laughs> right. You know, it's Nightmare Before Christmas, you know, because I'm hot, hot topic girl TM was my movie. But I think if this had existed at the same time, I would have been more obsessed with this than Nightmare Before Christmas mm-hmm. because there's that focus on a real girl, right? Um, and her blue hair is super cool. I would have wanted to dye my hair blue, which once I bought blue hair dye when I was in high school and my mom saw me with it and I had a friend over and she made me walk back to Walmart and return it then and there because I was not dyeing my hair blue. Rude. And it was like a dark blue. It would have been nice. So thanks, mom. Anyway, um, we watched this because it's been raining in Edmonton for the last three days and you were just, we were trying, trying to catch up on all the movies we missed. So we're a little behind in our goal of 365 movies for the year. 
And you were like, let's watch Coraline because it's a rainy day. This is the perfect rainy day movie. Yeah. Like, I do not think there's a better rainy day movie than Coraline. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, this is not only one of my all-time favorite animated films, but one of my favorite films. Full it's stop. really good. We um, have a little shelf of like either special edition copies of film or like VHS of them mm-hmm. with Funko Pops mm-hmm. and Coraline is one of them. We have like a really fancy special edition of it and then we have the Funko of her in her star sweater with the little cat. Mm-hmm. Um, and our niece was over this weekend. She's four and she we don't really have any toys. So she was searching for them where she could and she saw the Funko Pops and she looked at all of them. We have the Demogorgon. We have Chief Brody. We have um Seymour from Little Shop of Horrors holding the little plant. We have Carrie. We have Jack Torrance from The Shining. Mm-hmm. And then we have um one of the gremlins yeah. with the 3D glasses on. And she wanted Coraline. Mm-hmm. Like that was what she went for. She did want to look at Gizmo a little bit and she wanted to look at Seymour a little bit, but she quickly cast those aside side and was like, no, give me that girl with the cat again. <laughs> yeah. So it is the right choice. Yeah. In addition to this being one of our favorite movies, this also remains my favorite and most memorable 3D movie experiences. This is the only 3D movie I've ever actually felt was enhanced by being in 3D. Yeah. And it was one of the first 3D movies I saw and it set the bar incredibly high such that everything I saw afterwards just felt like a cash grab and like it didn't actually do anything to my experience of the film other than cause me frustration. Yeah, because I feel like this came out at the beginning before the height of everything being in 3D. Like there was just a there was this moment in time where if you wanted to see the brand new blockbuster movie that was coming out. You could only on day see one. It in 3D. You could only see it on. Uh, you could only see it in three D. Let me say, as somebody with a face that is neither <laughs> child size nor adult size, it's not fun to have to pick one or the other mm-hmm. because adult size three D glasses are way too big for my face. They're like falling off. Mm-hmm. But kid size glasses, perfect for my eyes, pinching the side of my face. Yeah, it's not. It's not. It was the same thing with like just regular masks Mm. um like the kind of hospital type masks like they're too big for my face and then kid sizes are too small for my face and i'm Mm. like well the mask has to fit you properly for it to actually work thank goodness that like the higher quality masks tend to fit Mm -hmm. but ah yeah yeah but problems of being a little adult yeah (laughs) little adult little face um yeah the like the 3d like you said, it enhanced the whole experience, which and it'll just stick in my mind forever as the one and only great 3D movie experience I've ever had. Avatar can stick it. Um, the interesting thing about Coraline, since we saw it when we were 19, is that I don't have a concept of what I would have felt about it as a kid. And whenever I bring up this movie to my students, who all were young enough to see it as children, they're all terrified by it. Yeah, like still to this day, they're like that movie scared the crap out of me. Yeah. Um, we did, I believe we showed this to our oldest niece when she was pretty young and she really liked it, but then she turned a corner where she started to be scared by it. Mm-hmm. So I think at first she really liked it. And then when she got old enough to really understand what was happening, it, it started to freak her out. We showed our currently four year old niece, a trailer for it because she was playing with the Funko pop and, her response was, I love it so much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so 
you know. Yeah, we've we've spoken about our four-year-old niece in the past is I think she's going to be the one that loves horror movies. Uh, and I hope that that remains the case because we have a lot to show her. <laughs> Starting with possession. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Something on this watch that I kind of picked up on that I hadn't really thought about in previous watches is that there's not really a wasted moment in this movie. Everything feels purposeful and meaningful and there's not a lot of wasted time or wasted space. I think that's a byproduct of most stop motion because it's so laborious to make. Like you, you're not going to make something that you might cut. Yeah. Although I do think there is things they cut, but I think for the most part, you're going to make sure you know what your film is and it's going to be tight and it's going to be good. Yeah. Are you going to spend a month to two months on something that's just going to not make the final cut? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. No, exactly. Um, And it has a cat in it, so it's always a win. This movie was originally supposed to be live action. Did you know that? And Dakota Fanning had been cast as Coraline in the live action version. Um, And I think what I understand from what I've read is that you know, live action was, or sorry, stop motion was kind of on the decline and it's expensive. And Henry Selleck convinced the studio to do it stop motion. And then they were like, Dakota Fanning, do you still want to do the voice? And she was like, yeah, okay. Um, I don't think this movie would have the following it has if it had been live action. I agree. There's something very hot topic girl TM appealing about this movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also, with this movie, I I don't see the voice actors in it. No, I, I don't either. I don't think about Dakota Fanning. I don't think about Keith David or Terry Hatcher when I'm watching this because this is just who these people are. And I think that if it was live action, that's all I would think about. Do you know who did the music? No. They might be giants. Really? Yeah. So, think about it. I'm making up a song about Coraline. <laughs> it sounds like a... You're yeah. not the boss of me now. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. They did everything, like all the nonsense stuff. I don't know if they did the nonsense stuff, but I guess that originally this was going to have more music. Mm. And they they wrote something like 10 songs for it. And then Henry Selleck decided to go in less of a musical direction. Good um, choice. And so it's just the, I think it's really just that song, but it, that song is really good. Yeah. <laughs> we sing it a lot around the house yeah. and we sing the My Twitchy Witchy Girl. Yeah. <laughs> no it's very good I, lo- I love that yeah just I wanted to touch just kind of going back a little bit about like every time I watch this I feel like I make the same comment and we have the same conversation while we're watching it like this is terrifying for kids and like the the themes of it just get more creepy and more dark and I think that's why I love it so much is like they didn't shy away from how creepy and dark this stuff is and it's it's so great it's such great entry-level horror stuff for young people oh yeah it's so like the the term that i kept thinking is sinister whimsy yeah which is totally my thing um even in like like that's i feel like you go from Coraline to something like a pan's labyrinth Mm -hmm. you know where you're really combining that terror and that beauty and that intrigue um and this is kind of playing on you know darker fairy tales that Mm-hmm. A person might like when they're younger. I just, I think that's great. And then I'm such a simp for stop motion. Yeah. You take that and you put it into, you take like that, the dark, but 
magical stuff and put it into the medium of stop motion and I am all in. Yeah. And it's great too to have a character like Coraline who is so compelling both in personality and in wardrobe that it's something that our niece gravitates towards when there's a Funko of it on the shelf um, or that it's it's so rife with Halloween costume ideas. And I've always wanted to dress as Coraline, but I haven't done it. <laughs> Let's, there was a crew member who their job was just to knit the clothing. And like the fact that it's knitted feels so tangible. Mm-hmm. Like that it's not all clay. There's all these different tactile kind of elements to it. Like mm-hmm. even her little squid figurine that like looks fuzzy. Yeah. Right. Um, Want to hear something dark though? Yeah. So Mr. Bobinski, mm-hmm. who we quote a lot. Yeah. Oompa, oompa. <laughs> um, his character is wearing the Russian hero's medal for service at Chernobyl. Oh. Which according to IMD tri- trivia explains his skin color and odd behavior. Oh, yikes. <laughs> yeah, dark, right? It is. I also read something kind of cool. So I have read the book Coraline, and this is one of those odd times where I like the film better. Mm-hmm. Um, but Neil Gaiman, who wrote the book, who I've met, have you met Neil Gaiman? I haven't met Neil, yeah, Neil I, Gaiman. I've met no. Neil Gaiman. He was very nice to me, actually. He said, uh, I met him at a New York concert of his then wife, Amanda Palmer, and she was very, very drunk, and it was my first time meeting her. I've met her so many times since then. And um, they were signing together, and so it was a little bit more official because he was there. We've been at signings, because you've met Amanda Palmer, that were not very official <laughs> Yeah. Um, when it's just her. But then when he was there, it was very like, you only have this amount of time. You need to stand in the lineup. And she was just wasted. Mm-hmm. And I'm meeting one of my heroes, right? And I said, I, I it was in New York City, and I said, you know, I'm, I came from Edmonton, Alberta, and she's just not really responding. And he goes, you did? That's very far. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, trivia from him. Um, I guess when he started writing Coraline, the intention was for her name to be Caroline. Mm-mm. But he misspelled it. Oh. And this is a quote from him. I looked at the word Coraline and knew it was someone's name. I wanted to know what happened to her. Mm. Love that. Yeah, it's really good. And it's such a like motif throughout the movie as yeah. well. Not Caroline at all. Yeah. Uh, I, I really like that. I love this movie. Um, this is one that I would be really excited for, for Metro to play again and to go go see in the theater. That would be fun to take our four-year-old niece to if they did it in the theater. Yeah. Um, and bring along one of her parents so that if she gets scared, it's not our fault. 100%. 100%. Wash our hands of it. <laughs> yeah, uh, we'll probably watch this once a year forever. Forever. How'd it make you feel? It always makes me feel just a magical comfort. This film makes me feel really cozy. Yeah. And especially because we tend to watch it on rainy days. Yeah. So just wrapped up in a blanket, physically and metaphorically. How'd it make you feel? Wrapped up in whimsy uh, and uh, terrific terror. <laughs> we went back to the theater. Mm-hmm. Kind of bopping back and forth this week. Um, to see the 2023 comedy drama and apparently romance, Asteroid City. So it's the newest film directed by Wes Anderson, and he co-wrote it with Roman Coppola. It stars a whole lot of people, but I'm just not going to name them all because it's too many. Um, so I chose four to name, and that's who I'm naming. Uh, Jason Schwartzman as Augie Steenbeck, Scarlett Johansson as Midge Campbell, Tom Hanks as Stanley Zach, and Jake Ryan as Woodrow. 
and so many other people. The synopsis for this is following a writer on his world-famous fictional play about a grieving father who travels with his tech-obsessed family to small rural asteroid city to compete in a junior stargazing event only to have his worldview disrupted forever. That's a shit synopsis. That was just one long run on sentence. <laughs> Get better, IMDb. Um, yeah, what do you think of Asteroid City? You know, I always look forward to Wes Anderson movies, even if... Even if the stories are shit, it's still a visual feast. Uh, and as a visual person, I love good looking stuff. And these tend to be his movies tend to be good looking stuff. And speaking of stop motion, he made Fantastic Mr. Fox, which is in competition with Coraline is my favorite stop motion animation film of all time. Uh, and Asteroid City was good. It was better than French Dispatch, which I really did not care for. I can see myself revisiting Asteroid City more than once. I a big thing that I loved about it though is that Jason Schwartzman got to take on more of a lead role. Yeah, I like him. I I really like him. I specifically like him when he's reading Wes Anderson dialogue. But I mean, we loved the show Bored to Death. Yeah. We yeah. haven't revisited it, but like Ted Danson, Jason Schwartzman, and Zach Galifianakis, are you kidding me? Yeah. How often do you hit a jackpot in casting? And they're like sweet comedians. Like yeah, It's not mean spirited and it's not punching down. And there's something about Jason Schwartzman's voice that I just love. And I mean, I, when we covered fantastic Mr. Fox, I said that Ash is probably my all time. That's me character. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I just love his voice in that, but yeah, it was great to see him in the lead and he was pretty damn Vaguely in it. Ooh, yeah, give him a beard and some gray. I'm, you know, I'm getting to that age. Me, 33 in like a couple weeks here. Men in their 40s are starting to be really attractive <laughs> to me. <laughs> Going to the Blink 182 concert, I'm like, you know what? Mark Hoppus and Tom DeLonge look real good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. Get a little bit of gray in there, and I'm like, yeah, handsome men, handsome yeah, men. Really nice. Um, did you not think he was handsome? No, I did. I thought there were a plethora of good looking people in this movie. Um, and I will say this, like a standout character is the character that Jeff Goldblum plays, which I love your comment about it. Cause you're like, if was if, if this movie was produced by a 24, there would be shit ton of merch that you could buy from it. Oh yeah. Probably the asteroid city sign character um, action figures. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. But like legit, I want it. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. I get it. More Willem Dafoe. Was this is our eighth, ninth, ninth Willem Dafoe movie this year? I mean, he's just the goat. He's everywhere. I'm just like, other than the visuals in Wes Anderson movies, his brand of dry, deadpan delivery. I know I've read a lot of comments online in reviews about this movie. Of they talk about some really heavy personal human stuff. And he does this in other films as well. But through that delivery, it loses them. Of like, why would they be talking this way about something like this? And it's just like, I can watch so many other movies where people don't deliver it this way. Yeah. That's why I come to a Wes Anderson movie because they're going to deliver it in this dry deadpan way and it's enjoyable and it adds humor. And it's just this really dry way of exploring very human things that in so many other films, it's wrought with emotion. It's just a different entry point. Yeah. I do think I've never been 
obsessed with Wes Anderson. Yeah. Other than Fantastic Mr. Fox, but I think that film is very different. Yes. From his other films. Um, like I know there's people who just love the Royal Tenenbaums and I saw it when I was quite young and I was like, yeah, that was good. I feel like that's how I often feel about Wes Anderson movies. Like I really enjoy watching them mm-hmm. and yet I don't really feel a desire to revisit them. Yeah. Like I, we've many times since seeing Grand Budapest Hotel been like, we should watch that again. And yet we haven't. It seems like that's the benchmark for everybody. Like in every review that I've read, almost every review, it's a comparison to Budapest and how how it how it um and how it compares to Grand Budapest and we've only seen it once I, I and I'd like to see it again but I'm not like chomping at the bit I I would rather rewatch Fantastic Mr Fox than re than and that's the thing right that's the Grand only Budapest. Wes Anderson film I've I've really revisited at length mm-hmm. I didn't like the French Dispatch at all yeah Budapest was good I haven't seen many of his early films I have never liked Bill Murray. Mm-hmm. Like you early in our relationship, we watched Ghostbusters cause you like it and I had never seen it. And we watched Scrooged and I hated both of them. <laughs> I just don't like the man. Um, and that seems to have proven itself good in recent comments that he has made in recent information about him. Um, this was the first, I believe Wes Anderson movie that he's not in. And it's cause he had COVID or something. Hmm. Um, and he was supposed to play the character that Steve Carell plays. Mm, I, I liked seeing Steve Carell. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> it was fun to see him in that. Yeah, I don't know. I Again, I just I enjoy his films while I watch them. I think that they're aesthetically pleasing. I like the delivery of the dialogue. I like most of the people who like come back to his films. I think there's a charming whimsy about them. And yet there's something that doesn't strike me emotionally about the films and I really need that emotional connection to, to want to revisit a film. Yeah. For it to like hit the five mark. Yeah. Uh, and only fantastic Mr. Fox has done that for me. Yeah. One person that I'm really glad joined, uh, West Anderson's recurring cast that I really enjoy the way that he delivers West Anderson stuff is Edward Norton. Yeah. Yeah, I really like. I really I've always like been a fan him. of him. Yeah, and speaking of him, the the thing that lost me a little bit, and the, where it kind of started veering into the stuff I didn't care as much about with French Dispatch is the cutting back and forth, trying to be like clever of this is a play within a play. At first, I thought it was doing kind of like a Twilight Zone thing, where like right, um, Brian Cranston was like Rod Serling, but then it. Then it wasn't that anymore. Then it started kind of turning Birdman for me a little bit. Mm. And I was, I don't know. It it didn't make me hate this film or it didn't wreck it for me. I'm just like, you're kind of pulling me out of the magical world I'd rather be in. Yeah, I'm sure there's a reason for it that people have written about. And I'm sure there's people that this elevates the film for them. But yeah, I thought this film was like cute and zany. There, there's a part in it that I'm absolutely obsessed with, and I think I would just watch <laughs> that clip on repeat because I thought it was one of the best things I've seen in a long time. But it was a just a couple minutes of a whole movie. Yeah, like we laughed. We like I feel like we were chuckling a lot more than a lot of the people in our audience throughout we made the a good film. Time. Color uh, palettes to die for, of course. Yeah, it's it's gorgeous as always, and as to be expected. Um, and the music was excellent. He. Wes Anderson um, collaborates with uh, Alexandre Desplat a lot. 
Um, and the, I thought the music was really notable here as well. Uh, I feel like the height of those powers are on Fantastic Mr. Fox, mm-hmm. but it was it was here too, and it just it made my it made my little monkey brain very happy. It does seem like it's a group of people who just like making movies together. Like uh, this was Wes Anderson has talked about how there's an element of this film that involves quarantine in the film that was very much inspired by the fact that we all went through quarantine. Mm -hmm. Um, And then because of when they filmed it, they were kind of in a quarantine as a group. Like they all stayed together. And Brian Cranston said it was like, quote, fulfilling an actor's dream camp because they would have like nightly banquets. And it it almost seems like it was like an actor summer camp, Mm -hmm. um, but they were making a big deal movie. So Mm -hmm. I think that's sweet. and, And I like watching them all go on their little adventures together, but I don't, Love it. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Not in love, Wes Anderson. I'm so sorry. Yeah. That, that's okay. How did Asteroid City make <laughs> you feel? Uh, visually and narratively sated. How did it make you feel? It made me just feel a lovely whimsy, as his films often do, minus the French Dispatch. Yeah. I also haven't seen most of his early films, but, you know. Yeah, yeah. All right. Next, we had our four-year-old niece over to our place to watch the sequel to the film we saw with her for her very first movie theater experience. We watched Paddington 2 from 2017. It's a family film. It was directed by Paul King, written by him, as well as Simon Farnaby, and it's based off of Paddington Bear, who was created by Michael Bond. Um, it stars Ben Wishaw as the voice of Paddington, Hugh Grant as uh, one of the best villain names of all time. You could tell he's a villain before... I even said he was a villain. Uh, Phoenix Buchanan, Hugh Bonneville as Henry Brown, Sally Hawkins as Mary Brown. Um, Michael Gambon as Uncle Pastuzo. Just love saying the name. Melda Sonton as Aunt Lucy. Uh, Madeline Harris as Judy Brown. Samuel Jocelyn as Jonathan Brown. And Julie Walters as Mrs. Bird. I will also want to mention the very lovable Brendan Gleeson as Knuckles McGinty. Um, <laughs> uh, Synopsis. Paddington, now happily settled with the Brown family and a popular member of the local community, picks up a series of odd jobs to buy the perfect present for his Aunt Lucy's 100th birthday, only for the gift to be stolen. Uh-oh. What'd you think? Well, this was a different experience because we had our niece over and she was busy. Very busy. She was art directing where everybody sat. Well, this is also... Um, our niece is a, for lack of a better term, a COVID baby. Yes. So she hasn't had a lot of experience being on her own at other people's houses other than her grandparents. And by that, I mean, she's never been in anybody else's house except for her grandparents alone. Yeah. This was her first time at someone's house without her parents who wasn't her dad's parents. She hasn't even been at my mom's house without her mom or dad. Yeah. So I think she was really excited. Like she wasn't scared at all or shy. She was just, I think, like, whoa, yeah. like, I'm a good kid. Yeah. <laughs> like she kept saying to her mom, I'm a good kid, mom. <laughs> um, so she was, yeah, she was busy. Uh, and she kept wanting to, like, let's sit on the ground. No, let's sit over here. No, let me sit on your lap. No, let's squish together on the side of the couch. Yeah. Um, which meant that the movie was was busy. And we didn't quite get to, like, sit and watch it in the same way we normally would. 
but it was so important to me and you and we talked about this after to in her first time being at someone's house without her parents to like make her comfortable and kind of appease her. Yeah. Make sure that we weren't shaming her or telling her no. um, And just like, let her be. Mm -hmm. Let her do her thing. We can move 13 times. If it makes (laughs) you probably moved more than 13 times. Um, There was a lot of uncle Elliot, uncle Elliot, uncle Elliot. What is he doing? (laughs) Yeah. Um, so yeah, and it was really special to, you know, cap off this Paddington experience of, like I said, we took her to Metro cinema, which was her first experience going to the movie theater and it was to see Paddington one. And now this experience of her coming to our place for the first time by herself watching Paddington two. And she, you know, being a little kid doesn't necessarily understand how everything works. And also being a little kid, you know, when you have a good experience wanting to repeat it exactly as it is. Yeah. So she had been asking to go back to the theater to see Paddington, mm-hmm. not understanding that like, oh, this was a one and done type thing. And then they did play Paddington two the next week, but she wasn't able to go because mm-hmm. again, it was playing once and that was it. And so, you know, we had suggested a couple months ago, I think well, you can come over sometime and watch Paddington two. And then she's been asking to do it ever since. Yeah. She was very excited. She made us like little pictures, like little collage puzzle things of cats. She's very excited to give us. And like a big thing we kind of had planned is that um, I I make popcorn at home for you, me, when we're watching movies, but we were going to make it for her and like involve her in the making process. She thought that was the coolest thing. Uh, She loved making the popcorn. And I've never seen someone eat popcorn as voraciously as she was. <laughs> yeah, she made a mess. It was nuts. It was just like grab a handful and shove it up to my face and whatever falls down, falls down. Um, so I had to teach her a little bit of popcorn eating etiquette because I'm, I mean, I get it. I'm the same way with popcorn. I just shove it into my face. And yeah. then all of a sudden the, the large popcorn I got is gone before the movie started. Well, your shared voraciousness for popcorn came through when at one point she was eating popcorn so intensely that she bit her finger and you said, I've been there. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, I haven't. I've never bit my fingers eating popcorn. <laughs> and then later you said, oh, yeah, that happens to me with popcorn and fries. <laughs> what the heck? Anything that's small food that you shovel. You bite your fingers. Bite my fingers. So she loved making and eating the popcorn that was very fun yeah and she and she loved the movie she did she really liked the barber scene yeah that was giving her some big laughs and then she was having a lot of feelings about paddington slight spoiler but paddington's in jail for most of the film and she was having some pretty big feelings about that yeah and we had a lot of really good conversations with her about like how the world is more complicated than bad and good She'd be like, those are bad guys. And I was like, well, no, not necessarily. And we had some good conversations about, well, if Paddington's in jail and he didn't do anything wrong and you think Paddington's a good person, then that could exist for these other men as well, right? Like they're not necessarily bad people because they're in jail. Um, She didn't like jail. (laughs) Yeah. She said she was sad. And she said, if I was in jail, I would miss my mom and dad. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're teaching her to be... A prison abolitionist. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Uh, she had lots of questions about that. Like a lot of questions about jail, about why they all wear the clothing that they're wearing and why 
he can't leave and and that mm. kind of stuff and it the the concept seemed to really trouble her which is a good thing i think i think it's incredible that i i don't think that the people that made paddington 2 were unaware of what they were doing no i don't think so at all i mean the very fact that there's a false imprisonment of this very lovable bear is meant to have us consider the reality of prison. And then even within it, I mean, Paddington seems to be unable to do anything but make every place he goes better. Mm-hmm. And so at one point, Ernie said, the jails become a party. <laughs> <laughs> um, so even that concept of like, if jails are going to exist, why can't they be nicer places to be? Um, yeah. Is a is a really interesting part of the film, I think. Well, and it's it all stems from Paddy, Paddington's quest of understanding. Mm-hmm. And not just of the world, but of the people that exist in it. And I think that that it's, it's shown through his relationships with the people that he meets within the prison of how, of they just want to be understood. They want to be heard. They want to be seen uh, as more than what others have projected onto them. Including other people in the prison, right? There's this really lovely scene where the cook assumes that no one else can cook anything. And then they all start standing up one at a time and being like, well, I know how to cook this and I know how to cook this. And it turns out like they even have bias towards each other, right? And the film is about, I think fundamentally at its core, it's about um, looking for the good in people. Yeah. Even when they don't necessarily allow you to. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really lovely. I think that's what Paddington as a character stands for is looking for the good in the world, even when you mess up and even when you make mistakes and misunderstand things that there's goodness in people. But like what a, what a thing to do of like, okay, we're going to take this beloved national character of Paddington bear and we're going to stick him in prison for most of this movie. And And it's going to be really sad. And it's going to be, it's going to speak to the realities of the prison system and understanding people in the world. And (laughs) it's a kid's movie. (laughs) And I I really liked that part of it, that in watching it with our four-year-old niece, she was able to ask those questions and we were able to have some of those conversations. So even though we didn't do what we typically do, which is watch a movie, not talk, enjoy it, experience it there was another important aspect of watching a film there, which is that when you're watching with a little one, it's a chance to have conversations. Yeah. Right. And so you and I have those conversations post film, but with a little one, you have them during. <laughs> yeah. Cause and that's just <laughs> as important, right? Because those questions are coming up right now. Like why is he in jail? Why can't he see his parents? Why are they on the other side of the glass? You know, like all of these questions are coming up and this little curious four year old who's feeling emotions needs to have those conversations in the moment. And it's a great privilege to be able to be one of those people who gets to do that with her. Yeah. It's, I think it's really special for her to obviously hit a bit of a point in, you know, a, a child's very binary like life of good and bad to be challenged by the film to be like, but are they good? Are they bad? And explaining the nuance of that and that it isn't just black and white. And even the like the character that is presented as the most antagonistic in the end credit scene, there's more to him than just that villain part yeah. of him. Right. And and there's a very funny 
end credit scene. Yeah. Um, this also has one of the best endings in cinema history. Mm-hmm. It's very, very lovely. Um, yeah. It's, it's funny for as busy as our niece was throughout this whole thing and as chatty as she was and how often we had to stop it. It, and I couldn't let the emotion of the film fully wrap me up, but there's still moments in the final act and leading into the final act that are so impactful that you can't, I can't help but get a little lump in my throat when these things happen. Cause it's like, Oh my God, they like went really hard here with the emotion. <laughs> it's really, really lovely. Also as, uh, as foreshadowed earlier, here comes citizen Kane. Um, Here's a piece of IMDb trivia. I don't know how accurate it is anymore, but it was accurate at one point in time. Okay. In early 2021, Paddington 2 beat Citizen Kane as the greatest film of all time, according to Rotten Tomatoes, because an old negative review of Citizen Kane surfaced and lowered its. <laughs> <laughs> so you heard it here. Uh, Paddington 2 is the greatest film of all time above Citizen Kane. Amazing. We probably should watch that movie sometime. Yeah, Probably. I just want to I want to briefly touch on the talent in this film. Um, ben Wishaw could not have been a better choice for Paddington. I don't know if we talked about this last time, but originally it was supposed to be Colin Firth, and they recorded yeah. some stuff, and they were like, "He's not the right choice." And yeah. I'm I'm glad they changed that. He seems like he would be, but there is a gentleness to Ben Wishaw and the way that he approaches Paddington's voice that I think is very beautiful. He's really good with gentleness. See. Little women. Um, little women? Women talking. Women talking, yeah. Like I said, I I love I really love Brendan Gleason. I really love when he shows up and stuff. And I forgot that he was in this. And there's a bit of a reveal to him being in this. Like he's just back to the camera, then he turns around and before he turned around, I'm like, all right, Brendan Gleason. <laughs> um and my one critique for this movie is that I could have used more Sally Hawkins. And I mean, I guess we have Paddington one for that. She's pretty prominent in that, but like, she's so great as Mrs. Brown. I just wish there was just more of Mrs. Brown. In great. A uh, great piece of trivia for her is that she was really, really done with doing underwater scenes after shape of water. And she filmed Paddington two directly after and like got there and was like, <laughs> Oh, so damn put, it. Put <laughs> more underwater. underwater stuff. Excellent. She's great though. She's there's, just, really sweet. there's something about Sally Sally Hawkins. They're just like, we gotta put that babe <laughs> underwater. <laughs> Do some swimming. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm sure we'll revisit this again in the future. The these two films are really magic. There's apparently a third one in the works. We'll go see it. Really, really lovely. It's lovely to show it to our niece. How to make you feel? Uh, Paddington always makes me feel this, but particularly Paddington too. It makes me feel a hope for the goodness of the world. Mm-hmm. You so appreciative that they made an already strong story established in Paddington one even stronger. A final movie of the week. And I think the only mystery movie of the week um, was my choice. And I had this in my head for a while. It was so much shorter than I thought it was going to be. So I was able to just kind of like put it on the back burner for the first opportunity to do a mystery movie pick. I picked the 1964 film Dr. Strangelove or How I Stopped Worrying and Learned to Love the Bomb. It is a comedy slash war movie, which is quite the paradox, uh, directed by Stanley Kubrick. And it was written by Stanley Kubrick and Terry Southern. And it was based on a novel by Peter George, although I think quite changed. But that was where the initial part of it came. Stanley Kubrick loves to take a novel and then completely change it. Yeah. 
It stars Peter Sellers in three roles as Group Captain Lionel Mandrake, President Merkin Muffley, and Dr. Strangelove. George C. Scott is General Buck Turgidson. Sterling Hayden is... Uh, I don't know what these military shorthands mean, but something General Jack D. Ripper. Keenan Wynn as Colonel Bat Guano. <laughs> and Slim Pickens as Major King Kong. So <laughs> if the names tell you anything, there's the comedy. The synopsis for Dr. Strangelove is an insane American general orders a bombing attack on the Soviet Union, triggering a path to nuclear holocaust that a war room full of politicians and generals frantically tries to stop. I picked this because Oppenheimer is coming out soon and it felt sacrilegious to to go see Oppenheimer without having seen this. Mm-hmm. What did you think of Dr. Strangelove? I love that so much. I love that this was considered Oppenheimer prep. <laughs> um, this has been on my list, my watch list for so long. I remember looking at this at A&B Sound on DVD when I was like in junior high, high school and being attracted to the uh, the cover art for this. Uh, I think this is on Criterion. It and, is, yeah. And the cover art for it. it absolutely rips i love the graphic design and the title sequences in this movie it's it's so cool and i feel like it was always put when i was in design school i feel like there was always stills from this film that were used as inspiration for projects on like the brief pages uh so it's always kind of just been around in my life since junior high as like i want to see that but this is a. I feel like this is a prime example of why I love mystery movie picks because I feel like if we weren't doing them, this would have just sat on my watch list for even longer. Yeah, and if one of us brought it up, it'd be like, ah, not tonight. Yeah, like if that's how we still watched movies, I feel like that's exactly what would happen. Well, this was, so like you, this has been on my watch list forever in, you know, late junior high, early high school. I, I had my Kubrick phase where Red O'Clock Orange watched it you know, read The Shining, watched it. My sister really liked Full Metal Jacket, so I've seen that a a few times. Read Lolita, watched it. Mm -hmm. Um, It's kind of going on my literary and film journey. And I bought this at some point because when I decided I wanted to watch this, it's not streaming anywhere, um, which is surprising that it's not on Criterion Channel. And I was like, I think we own this, but I don't know. And I look and we have it on DVD but it's still in its HMV wrapper and HMV has been gone for a long time. <laughs> um, and it has a pink two for 20 sticker on it. So I obviously was just doing a big HMV haul, which I liked to do in the day. And I was like, Oh, I, I Stanley Kubrick, a well-known movie. I, I want to watch it two for 20. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I peeled that off and off we went. Yeah. I, I thought that this was great. And just another testament to, Fucking again, loving 60s cinema. Yeah. Yep. This is a, it's different than I expected it to be. Yeah. But like you just said it, like it hit that 1960s pocket that we've come to realize we, we really love. Mm-hmm. And I think in terms of war film, this is the type of this or a come and see mm-hmm. is the type of war film I'm into as opposed to like a band <laughs> what, of brothers. What a comparison. I get it. But like, <laughs> well, I mean, either like, I think both of them are critiquing war. Yes. Just in, in different ways. Come and see is going incredibly harrowing. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dr. Strangelove is going satirical to show us the 
darkness of war and critiquing it in that way and the absurdity mm-hmm. of war, right? Yeah. Um, this is the same week that I read the, I guess it's a novel, semi-autobiographical um, text, The Things They Carry by Tim O'Brien, and it absolutely floored me. I wouldn't normally say I'm somebody who would pick up a war book, but it is stunning and emotion emotional and is also a critique of war. It's um, the Vietnam War in, in the case of the things they carry. And I desperately want you to read it. Um, one of the best books I've ever read. And so this also felt like an appropriate week to engage with another war text. Mm. Yeah, I, I will read it. <laughs> good, um, good. Um, I mean, this has the silliness that I come to expect from a Peter Sellers movie. I think I've seen more Peter Sellers stuff than you have. Yeah, you showed me the party and I was like, this is racist nonsense. And I think I've never watched anything else yeah. willingly. He is in Lolita, which you haven't seen. I haven't seen that. I've seen a number of the Pink Panther movies, though. Is he good in it? Uh, I mean, I was a little kid. My parents loved it or my mom loved it. So is his thing like voices? Yeah, it's like being a big goof like doing voices because he plays like detective Clouseau in pink. Is Panther. he French? Yeah. Okay. So, and, and he, he, he loves playing multiple characters and stuff too. So like it has that silliness for sure. But you know, at watching this as an adult, I, I just, I see the terrifying commentary on war, specifically nuclear war and the quote unquote pursuit of peace and the critique on government and the people that lead the places in which we live and just how there's just a degree of it. That's just all bullshit. And it's so stupid. And through that satire, it really highlights the stupidity of the things we do, especially when it comes to war. What's really interesting is that Kubrick originally read the book and planned to do this as a straight war film as, as a dark film um, and I have this quote from him where he said, quote, my idea of doing it as a nightmare comedy came in the early weeks of working on the screenplay. I found that in trying to put meat on the bones and to imagine the scenes fully, one had to keep leaving out of it things which were either absurd or paradoxical in order to keep it from being funny. And these things seem to be close to the heart of the scenes in question. Mm. So it just kept happening. And then he was like, fuck it. I'm just going to lean, lean into, into it. it. Um, and I think that was the right choice and why it, stands the test of time and is such an impactful um, film. And, you know, I haven't seen Full Metal Jacket since I was quite young. And I, I remember finding parts of it like really upsetting. So I, I took a look about it and I guess it's also an anti-war film. It's also a satire just on the Vietnam war. And I think on like toxic masculinity and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So we were looking at two very different wars and satirizing them in two very different ways. But, uh, revisiting full metal jacket for me and watching it for the first time for you is probably on the docket. Yeah. I just, I want to, I want to speak briefly about how complicated I feel about Stanley Kubrick because I feel like he's such a shithead and like he can be such a piece of trash. See his treatment of Shelley Duvall in the shining, but he just makes good looking, compelling shit. Like 2001 is a masterpiece. This is really smart and clever. The Shining is so well executed. Even his films that, like, I'm not a huge fan of Eyes Wide Shut, but I know lots of people that absolutely love it. And I I can see the objective merit of it, even though it's not, like, totally my thing. Yeah. 
And he just like, he knows how to shoot stuff. Like this has great cinematography. I, I really love the war room set piece. I think it looks so imposing and so cool. And what he does with shadows and contrast and the way he chooses to shoot people. Uh, he's a very good filmmaker. He's a very tricky person to like. Yeah. It's couple things um one the war room was inspired by metropolis which we've seen mm, so that's cool checks but out. another thing is you know so this film's in black and white and i believe this is his final film that was in black and white um so we couldn't see this but when they were filming the tablecloth in the war room was green because he wanted the actors to quote feel like they were playing a game of poker over the world's fate oh. so like he's really thoughtful about it but i think even you know you're talking about the, the shining and shelly duvall he clashed with people on this set too. The uh, actor George C. Scott, who plays um, Turgidson, he didn't agree with playing the character so over the top, mm. which we love. There's a scene where he's just, it just keeps cutting to him in like this, like, uh oh, <laughs> face that we just were, were rolling laughing. He gave, I mentioned, he gave us very like Tim Robinson, I think you should leave. Yeah, games. it's hilarious. So I guess what Kubrick did, which like isn't, I think, totally ethical, is he would let him play the role straight for the first couple versions of it. And then they had like an agreement that like the third time he would do it over the top. And then those were the ones he used. It's kind of like when you're taking a group photo and you're like, OK, let's take a couple nice ones. And like, now let's just get goofy. <laughs> let's all jump at the same time. <laughs> and then that's the one you use. And Peter Sellers apparently didn't like having to do scenes multiple times. So they kind of would butt heads over that. But, you know, what you hear, and I believe Shelley Duvall has even talked about this. I read a big article the other day that um, critiqued the narrative that Stanley Kubrick, like, wrecked Shelley Duvall and, and said that, you know, to lean into that narrative is to actually, like, remove agency from Shelley Duvall. Mm -hmm. um, and that she has spoken about, you know, that while it was difficult that she appreciated him as a filmmaker and she was really proud of the final product. And so I think both of those things can be true at once and it can be, I, I like your use of calling him a tricky person mm -hmm. um, because it seems like he butted head with heads with people all the time on set. And yet people also deeply respected the like control he had over it. Not unlike Wes Anderson. Yeah. Like Brian Cranston in talking about it being like a uh, asteroid city being like a little family camp also said it was an incredibly difficult shoot mm -hmm. because Wes Anderson is very particular so I think he can be difficult to work with and yet everyone's very proud of the final product mm -hmm. and and in awe of his like control over the set and his vision. So I think, you know, there's some linkages there. Yeah. It's hard to deny a good filmmaker uh, despite what kind of person uh, they are. 2001 A Space Odyssey is one of my all-time favorite movies. So, you know, mm -hmm. um, some interesting things here. This film was deeply impacted by the Kennedy assassination. So it was meant to come out in November um, 1963, but Kennedy was assassinated and they felt like it wasn't right to immediately put this film out. So it was uh, the release date was pushed by about three months. There also was a line that originally was like something about uh, have a bunch of fun in Dallas, but that's where Kennedy was shot. Mm. So they changed it to Vegas, which now makes a lot of sense, yeah, but I don't know yeah. if it did then. And it's, it's overdubbed. So I guess, a lot of people think it says Dagus because they see the mouth do a D, but we were watching it with subtitles. So, um, and then also originally this movie was going to end with a giant pie fight in the war room. 
<laughs> a custard pie fight. Um, and one of the one of the final lines of the film was going to be, "Gentlemen, our gallant young president has been struck down in his prime." Mm. And so uh, Kubrick had already been wanting to cut the scene because he said that the film was a satire, but that final pie fight scene went from satire to farce and he didn't want farce. Yeah. It was too over the top and it it wasn't, he originally thought it was going to work, but I'm sure having that, like they couldn't have a line like that right after Kennedy was assassinated. So Mm -hmm. that might've been the final, like, yeah, let's, let's cut this. And I think, again, I think that was the right choice. I can't imagine it ending with a pie fight that, that scene, those scenes were shot. Um, it's interesting because like I felt like the very last line in the film it felt like there was going to be more but then it, it kind of ends and I don't feel like where it ends with like our last pieces of dialogue is bad but it it feels like an ellipsis it doesn't necessarily feel like a period well a couple things about that um, Kubrick let Peter Sellers improvise a lot which <laughs> is I think rare for Kubrick that final line was improvised mm which is wild. Um, And then also Kubrick wanted to make a sequel with like it set in the mines. And he wanted, he specifically wanted Terry Gilliam to direct it. Like he didn't want to direct it. Mm. Um, And it just never happened before his death. But I do think I was reading some stuff about, you know, people who have seen the footage of the pie fight scene that there is some, the idea of like the pies are almost like missiles that like, once they start flying everywhere, you can't even recognize who's being like with people have pie all over their face. You can't even tell who's who anymore. But I, I really like what Kubrick said about like changing that line from satire to farce. And that wasn't a place yeah. he wanted to go. That ending strikes me as more of like a daisies ending. Um, yeah. And you, you did say a couple of the things in this film reminded you of daisies. I think they'd be a great double feature. Yeah, I agree. It's that's interesting too about because I can totally see them with like the pie fighting and it kind of um, I, I I haven't seen it. So I don't know if they do this, but I can totally see them if they splice together footage of the these politicians throwing pies at each other and then actual wartime footage kind of come and see esque. That's another line that they could have gone to of like drawing these comparisons of like these idiot politicians versus what's actually happening on the front lines and the power of contrast and juxtaposition with these two things that are so closely linked. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think there's brilliance that could have happened with that, but I, I, I think I lean to, I, I lean to agreeance with what Kubrick said about going too heavily into farce. There's some really interesting stuff in this too. So the musical score whenever they're in the plane in the B-52 scenes is um, like the saints go marching two by two, hurrah, whatever, whatever. I just, I always think of it as ants. Is there a version of it where like the ants go marching? Yeah, they, <laughs> um, I don't know if that's where it got adapted, but it, it in the movie Ants with a Z. Okay, that's where it is. They, they sing it like that. that's what my that. head kept saying. But in reading about it, um, th- that song is originally an Irish anti-war song about a man coming home from war mutilated and how like we'll never let them take our sons again is like one of something like that is one of the last lines, but the same tune, the like, was become an American civil war pro war song about like how everybody like hurrahs Johnny when he comes home from war. So, and both of those things were true when he picked this song for the film 
So there's even that wrapped up in it, that it's both an anti-war and a pro-war song, depending mm-hmm. on which nation you look at. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that's in, there's all of this stuff wrapped up in the film of people who think like, yes, let's just bomb these places and other people being like, let's try and stop this at, at all costs. And the insane amount of power that these bumbling fools have. Um, one of the alternate titles for the film, which I love was Dr. Doomsday or how to start world war three without even trying, (laughs) (laughs) which is great. Um, and then he picks all of these like ridiculous names like bat guano and, Jack the Jack D Ripper, Jack mm-hmm. the Ripper, mm-hmm. um, as part of the satire. And I think it's just, just incredible. Um, and then even within that though, he's saying really smart things. I was reading about how there's this whole speech that Jack D Ripper makes about, um, the communists putting like the water fluoride being like a thing that's <laughs> put on by the communists. But I guess this was an actual conspiracy that, this white ring extreme right wing group called the John Birch society believed in, in the fifties and sixties. And they would go around to small towns and pass ordinances requiring the arrest and jailing of anyone who advocated for fluoride in the water. Jesus Christ. Which like when you look at that and then you think of some of the extreme right wing things happening today. Yeah. Like you said, like this guy would be in QAnon. I did. I was like, yeah, this guy would be, he would be one of the ones going from small town to small town in Alberta saying all of these horrific things about the pride flag mm-hmm. that's, and that's been happening in Alberta lately and it's, it's awful. Mm-hmm. And then to look at that and be like, this has been happening for decades and decades and decades that these extreme white right wing groups target small towns to try and like, Oh, anyway. So like, you know, these things that he's playing with, yes, they're satire, but they're satire of real things. Yeah. And it's just, it's just wild. Really difficult. Just, we've had a lot of conversations lately of, it's really hard when the loudest voices in the room are not the, they're not saying the right things. And in this case, the loudest voice in the room starts a nuclear Holocaust. Yeah. (laughs) Despite the president, not even wanting it. Um, A last little lovely piece of information. You recognized as we were watching that James Earl Jones was in it. Mm -hmm. His film debut. Holy shit. Yeah. Kubrick saw him in uh, the merchant of Venice, like a theatrical, a stage version. Hmm. And put him in this film and then he became Darth Vader. So crazy. Amazing. Awesome. I'm really glad we finally seen this movie. Uh, It was a long, long time coming. Yeah. I definitely want to see it again. I'm expecting the same tone as Oppenheimer. Definitely. Yeah. I think I'm going to like this better than Oppenheimer to be (laughs) real, but I really hope one day I'm sure they have played it before, but I would love to see this movie at Metro. I'm glad to have seen it at home for the first time. Yeah. But I would love to go see it in the theater. How did it make you feel? Simultaneously silly and horrified. How make you feel? A kinship with the dark humor about Doomsday feels as relevant today as it did when he made this in the 60s, unfortunately. And that is fucked. That is sad. <laughs> All right, let's talk about dads. Dads of the week. Uh, who's your bad dad nominee? Picked the other mother. Me too. Yeah. I mean, how could you not, right? Yeah, she's disloyal. <laughs> she's disloyal. <laughs> You're supposed to be my lab partner. <laughs> um, yeah, tell me more about why you picked her. Uh, she's disloyal. She's tricky. She's conniving, treacherous, manipulative, and monstrous. I don't have any long-winded things. I just have a list of words. 
Uh, what about you? I said she's a groomer. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> she, she's so rude. Well, she is because she figures out all of the things that Coraline likes or dislikes and uses them to like win her favor. Yeah. Right. And then when that doesn't work, when Coraline like wises up to it, then it's just like, okay, well, I'll fucking tear you to pieces. Yeah. Right. She's rude. She's scary. She's, I, ugh. yeah. She's one of the scariest. I can see why this has fucked up the students of yours that it saw it when they were younger. Oh, yeah. And even like the other mother. Yeah. Buttons. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's really, she's really, she's so well done, but what a bad dad. Yeah. So the other mother. Don't, don't be, be our dad. dad. Uh, there was quite a few uh, people I had shortlisted for rad dad. Um, but I settled on Paddington. I did too. Excellent. Wow, we haven't had a like double agreement in a long time. Yeah, I was looking through it and I was wondering if we had picked Paddington before. I keep a list of this for a reason. Um, we didn't. We picked Sally Hawkins. Uh, um, and I think in Paddington 1, she is the rad dad. Yeah. But in this one... I mean, the fundamental message of Paddington, too, is like Paddington sees the good in people. I mean, that line is said. Mm -hmm. He sees the good in people everywhere all the time. And I think that's the very best thing that a parent could do, but then also teach their child to do. Well, and I think that this is the product of that. Like, this is the exact kind of approach to the world that Mrs. Brown had in Paddington 1. Yeah. And she's now imparted that onto Paddington. And I think he already had a glimmer of that, but... I think what these films do when we look at them from the perspective of like parenting or, or the idea of dad is if Paddington hadn't had Mrs. Brown, mm -hmm. that part of him might've been squashed. Yeah. But instead it's fostered and it just grows and he becomes an even lovelier version of himself such that he gets to then impart that to other people. It's kind of, that's actually kind of cool. And I feel like a first for our show in that, We've watched two films in the same series and the rad dad from the first film influenced and has been a good successful parent to our rad dad in the second movie. Uh, and that's just like a testament to who you want as a who you want as a dad. Because they create other rad dads. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, I just think, you know, Paddington sees the good in people. He finds way, ways to build community in even the most unlikely spaces and he brings out the best in others. So, like, we've got this lineage of rad dads where he's he's creating new rad dads. Like, we see um, through his influence on the people he meets in jail that, like, they become people who are likely going to then teach others how to be rad and awesome and kind. It's very cool. Yeah. And it's it's in Paddington's nature to be purely himself, but never shut himself off to self-improvement. Yeah. That's uh, a lovely way to say that. He uses his lack of knowledge and understanding of the human world to seek and perpetuate connection, empathy, and kindness. And he's just, yeah, this he's a he's an example of a con of continued self-awareness and improvement. Um that doesn't he doesn't let other people, things, circumstances stifle that. He is 100% himself and that doesn't mean that he's locked himself off from the, from experience and learning and improvement. Gorgeous. What a great one, two punch of Paddington and Paddington two. Paddington. Be our, Be our dad. dad. Okay. Rad wreck of the week. Um, 
you know, we've kind of talked about taking your nibblings or the little people in your life to see cool movies, take them to the theater, allow them to have first experiences. Uh, as a continued part of that, teach the the nibblings, the little and young people in your life, snack hacks. I and you <laughs> love snacks. Um, we look for ways to uh, have excellent snack experiences that pair well with the movies that we're watching. And I'm I'm kind of known as the the popcorn connoisseur in the house. I, popcorn, I think, is my favorite snack. I love it so much and getting to teach our little niece how to make popcorn and that because I mean she she's had popcorn at the movie theaters and like maybe some pre-bagged or microwave popcorn at her house I don't know for sure but we make hot air popcorn in our house (laughs) Uh, so that's a whole new experience for her and she was just like whoa this is so cool you get the seeds you put it in they, they start popping everywhere this is nuts um but I also like I do little part party bowls for you every once in a while. You're like, I'm snackish. Can you make me a party bowl? And it's just like sweet and salty snacks mixed together. And I just kind of put it together. It's something that kind of stems from something my dad used to do with me. Um, where I had one a bedtime snack and I would sit uh, across from where the pantry was. And so the pantry was blocked by the door to the pantry. And my dad would like very comically like point at stuff and be like, Ooh, maybe that, and he wouldn't speak. He would just like point at something and just be like, Ooh, ooh how about this? And then pull out something ridiculous and obnoxious. And it, like, it'd be like, it'd be like coffee grounds. It's like, this is for the snack. And I'd be like, no dad. And eventually he like pulled out something great. And so like, I feel like there's a lot of traditions and cool fun things that can be wrapped up in what we call snack hacks. And there can just be such great ties to the things you do and what kind of snacks you have when you do those things. We were really excited to have our niece over to watch a movie and like make popcorn with her. So that next time she comes over, she's like, let's make popcorn. Yeah. And knows that like, Oh, you get to put the salt and the butter on. Yeah. And it's kind of cool. Cause I talked a couple of weeks ago when, uh, when I mentioned, uh, when I talked about my Nana passing away, but like such a big core memory for me is sitting on the counter and helping her make hot air popcorn whenever I went over for a sleepover there. And I feel like I've picked that up. And if I'm able to kind of cre- recreate that experience for the little nuggets in our life, that brings me a lot of joy. It's very cute. And he took some po- some photos and of, of us making popcorn together. I'm like, that's cool. That's really sweet. That's yeah. lovely. Um, so yeah, snack hacks, figure them out and share them with the little nuggets in your life for listening. We drop a new episode every Thursday. You can follow us, slide into our DMS over on Instagram at baddad.raddad. Get a sneak peek at what we've been watching in our individual letterboxd accounts. Usernames are in the show notes and we would love you forever. If you share us with the rad people in your life and drop us a rating review or follow on Apple podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. And that's going to do it for these snack heads this week. So until next time. I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot and my dad's a deadbeat. But remember. Not all dads have to be bad. Bye.